Section 15 of the American Bee Journal, Volume 6, Number 3, September 1870. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Joe Crafts. The American Bee Journal, Volume 6, Number 3, September 1870, by Various. Form of Hive and Feeding Bees. I object to a low and flat shape of hive, for reasons which I shall assign. I will first state, however, that a hive of bees without provision for the retention of animal heat is as helpless as a newborn babe without raiment. Take as an example a hive twelve inches square, containing an oblong square perpendicular, and the frames to suit in size and shape. Your combs, say eighteen inches in depth, perpendicular, and twelve inches wide. The bees, in order to hatch brood as the weather becomes warm in the spring, will cluster at the larva end of said combs and keep up the temperature from bottom to top because of two combined reasons, the combs being the long way perpendicular and the natural tendency of heat being to rise, it ascends throughout the entire length of the combs, and thus the proper temperature is attained throughout the hive. It is a set of principle, too, that a given quantity or number of bees can produce animal heat only sufficient in amount to rarefy the air in a given space to a given temperature. Take, for example, a low flat hive with combs, say, 18 inches long, horizontal, and 9 inches deep, the hive being 12 inches wide, the same as the other. Now remember the principle just before stated. The bees will collect at the front end of the comb, and the animal heat, as generated, will ascend the same as along the combs and the other hive, which are 18 inches deep, whereas these are only 12 inches deep. Is it not obvious that here one-third of every comb towards its rear end is entirely lost to the bees, so far as the early production of brood is concerned, because of the shape of the combs and the natural tendency of the heat generated to ascend? If the bees, being the same in number in both hives, were spread out at the bottom of the combs in the last-mentioned hive, the full size of the hive, the cluster would be 12 inches wide and 18 inches horizontal. Then, on the principle that a given number of bees can generate only a certain degree of heat in a given space, they would fail to bring about the proper temperature in any part of the hive, and the result would be that they could not produce any brood. But allow them, as they will, to contract the size of their cluster, and you find that there is nearly one-third of each comb not used by them in the production of brood. Hence we find in the communications of beekeepers such remarks as these. My bees swarmed out of my common box and log gums earlier than they did out of my patent hives. But universally we find in such cases that their patent hives are low and flat in shape. We have used such hives and know by experience the truth whereof we speak, and, fearless of successful contradiction, we proclaim that the time is not far distant when the practical beekeepers will adopt the shape of from a square to an oblong perpendicular, the oblong being preferable. We once were of those who thought there could be no difference in the mere shape of a hive, but justice to the true principles of beekeeping compelled the change of opinion. There is still another reason why bees should have a hive long up and down. In cases of long-continued extreme cold weather, the bees cannot move in a lateral direction to obtain food, but the warmth of the bees will aid them in obtaining it from above, from the fact that their warmth will ascend and keep the frost melted at a greater distance from the bees above them than on the sides. And, further, when spring came, or in the month of April, my bees almost always became nearly extinct in the low, flat form of hive. Now, in conclusion, let me add some remarks on feeding. There is a principle in the feeding of bees that is truly astonishing in its effects. They may be fed in sufficient quantity to cause them to fill all the empty cells and thereby work a complete destruction of the colony if the owner fails to remove some of the honey out of their way. 
or they may be fed in such proportions that the prosperity and increase of the hive will be somewhat like the rolling of a snowball. The longer and further it rolls, the greater its magnitude becomes. The queen has the ability to deposit from 2,000 to 3,000 eggs every day in the height of the breeding season, and if bees are then excited by finding liberal supplies of honey in the flowers, yet not in such abundance as to cause them to fill the hive to overflowing, brooding and rearing young bees will proceed most rapidly. But if there is little honey or none yielded by the flowers, and the bees remain idle for some length of time, the queen will cease depositing eggs, while on the other hand, if the bees rapidly fill nearly all the cells with honey, the queen must necessarily cease laying for want of room to deposit eggs. Bees seem to have three periods of probation. The first 21 days of their existence are passed in the cell. The next 18 or 21 days they spend in the hive mainly, nursing brood exclusively, except when engaged at times in building or repairing comb. The next period is devoted to assiduous outdoor labor and varies from 40 to 50 days in the busy season of the year. Early and continued stimulation to activity by feeding the bees causes the colony to become strong in numbers. If, therefore, we wish for handsome profits from the labors of the bees, we must have them in great numbers, at all times in the hive. If we expect great quantities of honey from weak colonies, we are doomed to disappointment. In almost every locality there is a time, during the spring or summer, when bees cannot gather nectar from the flowers. Such spells are sometimes prolonged for months, and in some years, in Iowa in the month of June, the writer has known colonies to starve to death. In such times of scarcity, the beekeeper should always be on the alert, and begin feeding only in sufficient quantity to produce activity in the hive. It frequently occurs that bees use up all the unsealed honey in the hive, and almost stop brooding. They appear to be reluctant to open their sealed honey. It seems that there is a principle at this point which we have not been able to grasp yet. I think that as a rule, if bees run out of unsealed honey in the spring months, the keeper should, from time to time, shave off the capping of some of the full cells. This, I think, would answer the same purpose as feeding, by exciting the bees to activity. It should be practiced in all cases where there is plenty of sealed honey in the hive in the forepart of the season, and feeding only to a limited and small extent when the bees have used up their unsealed supply. In fact, feeding should never be resorted to while the hive contains plenty of sealed honey. Better uncap some of it. It is not by any means desirable to have a hive in the height of the breeding season, with the cells so stored with honey that the queen is unable to deposit eggs to the full extent of her powers. Better extract some honey, even if you have to return it again by feeding as the season advances, thus keeping up the activity of the colony. There are many attempts to systemize beekeeping. Some ideas communicated through the journal prove highly serviceable. Others drop without effect perhaps except that they set beekeepers to thinking, and sometimes to experimenting, which is useful too, if it be not indulged in at too great cost. J.W.C. Monroe, Iowa Practical gardeners may find the management of bees for their employers quite a lucrative part of their profession. When a colony of bees has become hopelessly queenless, then moth or no moth, its destruction is certain. Longstroth Bees work for man, and yet they never bruise their master's flower, but leave it, having done, as fair as ever, and as fit for use. Herbert End of section 15